three of our fall adult faith formation on the social doctrine of the church. Tonight's topic, sin, what it is and what it isn't. As usual, we'll have about half hour of teaching and then have room for about half an hour of question and answer. As a little side note, these tables are set up for our parish mission night. You're happy to use them. Kind of make sure when you leave that everything's set up. Elizabeth and the Godey family did hard work to get this all set up, so kindly make sure it's all as it was when we found it, so things are ready for tomorrow evening. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, and thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Holy Mary, our hope, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Now hopefully you might have guessed it, hopefully you had enough, a little bit of catechism to anticipate that our scripture passage that we'd focus on for the topic of sin would be the account of the original sin from the book of Genesis. So going to start with a lengthy quote, Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 through 19. Genesis 3, 1 through 19. You've heard this before, but it's worth going over. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. The serpent said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said unto the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you, eat it, when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves aprons. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I ate. The Lord God said unto the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the cattle and above all wild animals. Upon your belly shall you go, dust shall you eat 
all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Yet your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. And toil shall you eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground out of which you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. If you'll inspired, we'll continue. We'll continue on through uh, the end of the chapter. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So we read that passage because that is the encapsulation of sin. It is the original sin and its attendant effects. It is also the icon of every sin. We'll just break it down briefly. I don't want to take the whole class doing it, though that could certainly be done. Break it down briefly to help understand how really every sin is like this. It begins with an observation and a temptation. Virtually every sin, especially a sin that is new to us, begins first with temptation and a confusing one. Serpent says, did God say you can't eat of any of the trees? No, God didn't say that. And she responds with intellectual knowledge. God said, we can eat from the trees of the garden, just not the trees in the middle of the garden. If we do it, we die. And then the greater temptation of, this is the heart of all the movements of sin. God knows full well you will not die. But that if you eat of it, you will be like God. That is the heart of every sin. God is a liar and God is your enemy. God exists to oppress you and lie to you. That is at the heart of every sin, great and small, especially the big ones, right? This is why understanding divine law is fundamentally important. Divine law is that revelation of right relationship with God and neighbor. And when I violate willingly divine law, that's in a sense saying, I know better than God, right? That's the heart of knowing good from evil. I think a better translation is you will call good from evil. It is the destruction of innocence and the exaltation of the self. 
if just to connect it to the gospel, this is a very elemental when, our, when the Lord Jesus says, unless you become like little children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. That exaltation of the self. And that exaltation of the self immediately creates enmity. Right? This is a psychological reality. If I exalt myself psychologically, intellectually, monetarily, if I exalt myself above or against others, I immediately create a distinction between myself and another. And distinction does not have to be opposition, right? The man and the woman don't hate each other, but now they become afraid. They have something I have noticed, not my sameness, right? Now the man and the woman are no longer, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Now it's, that one's different from me. I notice, right? What's the, what's the point of naked and afraid? Because there is difference between the man and the woman. But instead of that difference being bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, this is, she's not like me. He's not like me. And then it's the fear that comes from alienation, right? We all know this. We're afraid of things and people we don't know. Sometimes for good reasons, Sometimes for bad reasons, but when we don't know them, for no reason whatsoever other than they're different. And then, of course, the greater alienation comes now. They fear God. And when they fear God, they fall into the next effect, right? First effect of sin, I exalt myself and believe God is my enemy and exalt the self. The exaltation of the self leads to alienation between my neighbor and then it leads to alienation to God. What's their first move to God is not to blame God, to blame the other person. All right, you watch that. You've eaten the fruit. Oh, the woman that you put here. Right? Blame God. The woman you put here told me to eat it. Okay. Get to you later, genius. Why did you do this? The serpent told me, right? Now, not has a heart of, has a more charity, but still blaming the other. What's not going on here? Repentance, right? You'll just notice that. No, because repentance is not possible in this moment. They're facing sheer justice in the presence of God, whom they walked with. Now they fear as they fear each other. And then blame the ethereal thing, right? The serpent is placing the blame on the fearful thing. This other thing, that's what, right? Sin's not here in me, sin's out over there, right? See, there's this. That's a sinful TV show. That's a sinful picture. Well, no, sin is in a person, right? Yeah, you shouldn't look at that picture. Yeah, you shouldn't watch that. Okay, fair enough. But the sin's not there. Sin's here. Oh, the, the TV show came up like this. No, okay, fair enough, it did. But you didn't turn away. In fact, you went and rewound it, and you watched it again later at night when your wife wasn't with you. Mm -hmm, right? So on and so forth. And you rationalize. So this is where you can read the account of the original sin over and over and over. And it's, 
It's at the heart of every sin. Small sins in a small way, big sins in a big way. All right? So it's, it's like that. It's like that. So meditating on that. And then it gives the effects of sin. The essential thing, right? Not the only thing about being a woman, but the essential heart of a woman to bring forth life is now painful. The, not the only thing in the life of man, but the essential heart of a life of man to labor in the garden now is painful. Now the earth itself rebels against you. There's this enmity between you and this enmity between this. And because you have exalted yourself, you are cast out of the garden. So they can't eat from the tree of life. That gets to that dreadful quotation from uh, Wisdom chapter 2. You might know this one. Wisdom chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. Wisdom 2, 23, 24. For God created man for incorruption, made him in the image of his own eternity. But through the devil's envy, death entered the world. And those who belong to his party experience it. St. Paul will say this later in Romans, the wages of sin are death. So that is the context in which sin lives. Now to be very clear, a sin is doing something you know is wrong. That's the basic, we'll get into the more formal definitions of it. But the basic definition of a sin is doing something you know is wrong. We might refine it a little about is doing something that is wrong and you know it's wrong. Like if for some reason I have uh, mouth bad formation, right? And I think it's wrong to share some of my sandwich because I've maybe I come from a culture where there's just a lot of notions of touching and cleanness and so on and so forth. And so I think it's bad to have share something I've touched with someone else. Actually, I've helped, well, I violated my conscience. I did something I thought was wrong, but it was actually quite a good thing. So the sin is very much mitigated in that sense. But generally speaking, sin is doing something you know is wrong. And it's spiritual effects, that meditation, can I... I, I'm not sad to spend the 15 minutes on Genesis. We could go on and on and on about Genesis uh, from there, but let's move to some more formal definitions just to clear up categories to answer questions like, is it a sin to take from the cookie jar or whatever, okay? Because that's where a lot of our morality comes down to. So in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, it has a, an article titled, Sin, right? Begins on paragraph 1846 and ends on paragraph 1876. 1846 to 1876. We're not going to read all 30 paragraphs because that's laborious, but again, for further study, 1846 to 1836. I just want to, the opening paragraph is very important to the way the church thinks about these things, right? Paragraph 1846. The gospel is the revelation of Jesus, excuse me. The gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. Right? Remember that. What's the gospel? 
the gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. Okay? 18 for the, the gospel is the revelation in Jesus Christ of God's mercy to sinners. The angel announced to Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Right? Matthew 1 21. The same is true of the Eucharist, the sacrament of redemption. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. Matthew 26, 28, right? So that's what the gospel is. It's mercy unto sinners. So what, what is this thing which the Lord has mercy on? Paragraph 1849. Sin is an offense against reason, truth, and right conscience. It is a failure in genuine love for God and neighbor caused by a perverse attachment to certain goods. It wounds the nature of man and injures human solidarity. It is defined as an utterance, a deed, or a desire contrary to the eternal law. Right? Now you're understanding why I spent two classes on divine law and on conscience. Divine law is the revelation of God's own self to the world. That's what divine law is. In divine natural law, through creation. In divine positive law, through his utterances and talks. Right? This is the life of God revealed to the world. Sin is an utterance, a deed, a desire contrary to that law. And it offends reason, because reason orders everything to the good. Truth, right? We hammered that home in the very first session. I am the way, the truth, and light, right? Truth, this is the whole orientation. Christ before Pilate. For this I was born, for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. All who listen to the truth hear my voice. So right reason and truth. And a right conscience, the thing that tells us what's good. We've ordered it to it. Sin offends those things. So we're doing something we know is wrong. It is, in a sense, an unreality. It is an acknowledgement. It is an embracing of an unreality or a non-reality. Just as a little linguistic sidebar, and almost all... It's interesting how sin came to mean this in English. Right? In Latin, sin is peccata. And in most of the Romance languages. In those languages, sin means without. Right? If you go to Italy and you get aqua sin gas, right? means you don't want sparkling water. You want it without the bubbles. Sin, without. And that's actually really helpful in English. Sin is a lack of something that should be there. It's the embracing of an unreality or a non-reality and begins to warp things. So we move forward. It is precisely, this is 15, 1851. It is precisely in the passion when the mercy of Christ is about to vanquish it that sin most clearly manifests its violence and many forms, right? So fin, sin manifests its violence and many forms in the passion. Unbelief, hatred, shunning, mockery, cowardice, cruelty, betrayal, Denial, the flight of the disciples, right? All these things. 
However, at the very hour of darkness, the hour of the prince of this world, right? John 14, 30. The sacrifice of Christ secretly becomes the source from which the forgiveness of our sins will pour forth inexhaustibly. So it is eternal truth itself clothed in the nakedness of humanity. It is almost certain that Christ was nude on the cross. We don't depict that out of appropriate concepts for ourselves and children and so forth. But it would be very likely stripped naked before all the world. Pontius Pilate, after he's been beaten and violated, saying, Ecce homo, behold man. So this is humanity as such. He enters into that. He enters into all the unreality and the non-reality and conquers it, takes it on and conquers it. And that mercy pours forth inexhaustibly. Again, this is not a, it's not a catechism on the passion, but it, it's at the heart of the Christian revelation. It's at the heart of understanding, acknowledging reality that life is a tragedy tainted with malevolence. It ends ultimately in death and failure with acts of evil all around. And Christ enters fully and wholeheartedly into that. The tragedy, ultimately, of death and the malevolence of these evils, all right, bitterness, cruelty, etc. Because we know it's in humanity that despite all of that, we have the spirit to push forward and it's ultimately redeemed inexhaustibly. So we should know the passion within the context of Genesis, right? It is redeemed inexhaustibly. So as we move forward, bear that in mind, right? That that is our fundamental orientation as Christians is to triumph over sin and death. Now, I love this from 1852. There are a great many kinds of sin, and Scripture provides us with several lists of them. Yes, all right, so there are. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, anger, selfishness, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and the like. I warn you as I warned you before. I love St. Paul's phrase, right? I warn you as those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, right? That's Galatians 5. Why does he warn that if you do those things, you won't inherit the kingdom of God? Well, it's right back to the Genesis story, right? It's cast outness. Un- you can't be in the presence of ultimate reality when you have acknowledged unrealities within you. So the Catechism goes on sins are rightly evaluated according to their gravity. The distinction between a mortal and venial sin already evident in Scripture. By the way, what's that? That relevant in Scripture is 1 John 5 16, 17, right? Where is the scriptural distinction between mortal and venial sin? 1 John 5, 16 and 17. Not all sin is deadly. It says, pray for the forgiveness of sins. I do not tell you to pray for sins which are deadly. Right? Which is exactly what we have in the Mass. Venial hopefully no, right, categorization. Mortal sins, big ones. Venial sins, small ones. 
What's the Latin word for deadly? Mortus, right? Mortal, the killing kind. Why is it called the killing kind? Mortal sin destroys charity in the heart of man by a grave violation of God's law. That's why it kills the life of charity and grace in your soul. Venial sin allows charity to exist even though it offends it and wounds it. Right? Venial sin offends love in your heart. Mortal sin destroys it. For a sin to be mortal, this is 1857, for a sin to be mortal, three conditions must together be met. Mortal sin is a sin whose object is grave matter. What you do is serious. Which is also committed with full knowledge and deliberate consent. Right? So mortal sin is great, serious. You know it's serious. And you freely do it. Basically like, I mean, really that's not that revolution. That's all sin. All, right? Just a sidebar. Remember, you can't sin on accident. Please understand that. Right? <clears throat> Doing something you know is wrong is called a sin. Right? Doing something you don't know is wrong is called a mistake, right? And you can make a mistake. Doing something you know is wrong, not on purpose, is called an accident. Okay. So accidents and mistakes are not sins. You have to, so you can't sin on accident, you can't sin by mistake. You can do evil by mistake, and you can do evil on accident, right? A lot of tragedies are people doing evil by accident. Thus wise, is the sin of the drunk driver that he killed the person? No, because he didn't intend to. But because he destroyed reason in his own existence and chose to do something incredibly dangerous, that is, he will be held accountable. Right? Does that make sense? The killing was done on accident. That's not what he'll be judged for the deliberate choice to drink and become intoxicated, that's what he'll be judged for, so on and so forth. All right. Unintentional ignorance can diminish or even remove the imputably, uh, even of a grave offense, right? So the catechism teaches that. Unintent Remember when we talked about conscience, you can have ignorance, and there is unintentional, I would like to know that, but I, I don't know how to, I can't. Now, this is a very important paragraph, 1861. Because mortal sin is something that really bothers people. But here's why it's important to know. Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom. Just the way love is. Right? Right? Mortal sin is a radical possibility of human freedom. You are able to freely choose what you want. God will not impinge on your freedom. Other people will impinge on your freedom all the time. The world will impinge on your freedom all the time. Governments impinge on your freedom. Businesses impinge on your freedom, so on and so forth. The weather impinges on your freedom. Your children impinge on your freedom, so on and so forth. God will not. So mortal sin results in the loss of charity 
the privation of sanctifying grace, that is, a state of grace. You mortally sin, you lose the life of grace in your soul. If it is not redeemed by repentance and God's forgiveness, it causes exclusion from Christ's kingdom and the eternal death of hell. For our freedom has the power to make choices forever with no turning back. The radicality of freedom means your life choices matter. That's the point. What you and I choose to do or not do counts, which should not terrify us, should very much ennoble us. It should very much ennoble our character. We should not be afraid that we have the possibility of going to hell. We should understand that it is the radical affirmation of the nobility of our character. Because if I only have the ability to do good, I am a robot. If it's not possible for me to do bad, it's not possible for me to love. Because I have no way to choose against it. That is the radicality of the freedom wrought in Christ. Now, becoming we're close to time, we're going to move through the remaining definitions, right? Venial sin is that exact same thing, only a smaller version of it. Right? We, and we all know this kind of thing. If I hate Joe and shoot him and kill him, that is very different than if I hate Joe and talk bad about him to my neighbor. Are both sins? A yes. Both are disregarding the image of God that is in my neighbor. I don't hate Joe, by the way. <laughs> but as I hope we can see just by reason, right? There's obviously two different characters to those sins. Are both sins super yes? Is the gravity of the two sins different? I hope that's obvious to everyone that they are. And they can go on, so on and so forth, right? Venial sin weakens charity manifests disordered affection for created good, impedes the soul's progress in the exercise of virtues and the practice of moral good. It merits temporal punishment. Mortal sin merits eternal punishment. Venial sin merits temporal punishment. St. Paul talks about this, right? You don't eat and drink the body and blood of Christ worthily, that's why a lot of you get sick. Some of you are even dying. The general notion, sin makes the world the worst place. The Old Testament is chock full of it. So that's, hopefully that is sensible. Sin creates a proclivity to sin. It engenders vice by the repetition of the same acts. Boy, that's true, Right? It's really hard. If you, if you, most of us are too old to remember the first time. But the first time you lied was probably really hard and super nervous making. But it made the second time a lot easier. And the third time a lot easier. And so on and so forth. Right? You maybe have met, I've met, they come, people come in and tell me, I lie, Father, and I have no idea of it. I just found myself lying about something for no reason. And it didn't change. I don't have any idea why I did it. There are, frankly, there's a lot of such people. Right. For the average person, the first time they watch pornography is a really intense, mildly terrifying time. But it becomes habitual. So on and so forth. Right. The first time you harbor judgment and disdain for your spouse and your soul and pop off to them is probably a little nervous-making. 
but then you just keep doing it, all right? So on and so forth. And this is something to understand beautifully in the spiritual life, right? The radical freedom we have to violate the divine law. There is a rightly ordered existence that allows me to enter into the very life of union with God, God's own self, right? That first paragraph from the Catechism. God, perfect and infinitely blessed within his own self, out of a plan of sheer goodness, freely creates humanity to share in his own divine life. It's, it's the eternal play, it's the Garden of Eden, right? It's the playground. It's mom and dad on the swing set playing with their kids. That's what you're at a cosmic level of, because all the dads are like, oh yeah, my back was killing me when I did that, right? But at a cosmically fulfilled level. But because I'm freely invited, freely invited, freely invited means I can say, no, I'm taking my ball and sitting over here. And haven't we all seen that miserable kid, right? You've probably seen it in your own family life. Everyone's together having a great time. And so and so, I don't like this. I'm going here. And then they whack their sister and steal the ball and sit over here. That's sin, right? And it's effects. I matter. We don't matter. And in the great world of us, where there's a lot of we's, there is a law. There's a garden. There's a great big sandbox, okay? Or however you want to work that analogy. And you have the freedom to step out of it. Now you have a Savior who says because the first people stepped out, now everybody knows you can and knows how and knows way. And we're really clever so we can riff on all that. Oh, Adam and Eve sinned that way. Watch what I can do, right? Now the Catechism talks, this is the last thing I want to to close with. Sin makes people accomplices of one another and causes concupiscence, violence, and injustice to exist among them. We know that's true, right? What are they doing? What does she want? If they get two pieces of the pie. That's two pieces I don't get. So on and so forth. Sin gives rise to social situations and even possibly institutions that are contrary to the divine goodness. Structures of sin are the expressions and effects of personal sins. They lead their victims to do evil in turn, right? What the church would call a structure of sin is a personal sin that either A, invites other people to do it, come on with me. Right? I'd rather laugh with the sinners than cry with the saints, to quote a certain song, right? Or it's malevolence causes people to commit that sin in turn. We know that happens, right? Alcoholism, abuse, those are big ones. Why should I play fairly? Nobody else is. Uh, I think 2007, 2008, it was a huge... If if you want to... What do we really mean by structural sin, Father? 2007, 2008, a huge economic system predicated on lying and stealing until they ran out of money to steal and it all fell apart and caused mass devastation to a huge number of people, right? 
There's a great example of structures of sin. Right? So on and so forth. So it is to allow us to understand, right, that all of this is a radical freedom. But a radical freedom that allows us to face the tragedy of life that is tainted with malevolence with inexhaustible mercy. Because right? he shows us the structures of sins through the passion and becomes a source of inexhaustible mercy. As we if, if Jesus says, you have to forgive your brother not seven times, but 70 times, seven times. Well, you better believe he can forgive even more. So when it comes down to ordinary acts, put that under that reign of the passion, ultimate goodness, radical charity. Is it a mortal sin to steal the cookie from the cookie jar? No, it isn't. Does it offend charity? Yep. You don't know who that cookie's for. Your mama told you not to have it, and she loves you. And God's law said, you listen to your mom and your dad. And you want to love God. Ma bugs the heck out of you. She's a little nutty. But you love God. And then you learn how to love your ma. And then, oh, by the way, that cookie was for your little brother who had a hard day. You didn't know that. Because then the law of love, rather than their fear of sin, allows us to go to a much higher level. Okay. I'm beyond my half hour, but I think I've covered more or less what I want. We are free to ask questions that go deeper down a particular line or something else I've talked about. So any questions or comments you may have? Pat. The heart of sin is an alienation to God and an alienation to neighbor. When Jesus was asked what is the greatest of the commandments, he answered, love God with all your heart, your mind, your strength, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Yes. Does that restore us? Our state before original sin. So that, that command, right, you've, you've identified something very clear. The only thing I would correct about what you said is the heart of sin is not alienation between God and our neighbor. The heart of sin is being turned in on myself. Its principal effects are alienation from God and neighbor. So he says, turn out of yourself and love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength and your neighbor as yourself. Don't get... Don't get stuck on yourself. I decide what's good. I decide what's right. I say what I want. I say what I need. No, it's towards the... So, so now again, you need the cross. The cross is what you need for it to take effect. None of Jesus' commands matter one whit unless he is crucified and rises from the dead. That makes... See what I'm trying to say? So his command is not so much what remedies it, but once he rises from the dead, yeah, obeying that command is the ultimate healing from sin. So then sin is something that comes from within us. Then Satan is just nothing more than a tempter? Quite so. The devil made me do it. It does not exist. The devil can't make you do anything. Uh, I'm sorry I'm not going to remember the biblical passage, but you know this saying from our Lord Jesus. He says, from what is inside a man, from what comes from within him, Defiles. He's talking about right. the things that come from out cannot defile. It's from within a man, from his heart that comes from out. What comes from within a man is 
blasphemy, lie, right? Jesus goes down the realm of how horrible we are. But that's, Jesus says, from without, no, from within. Sin is here. Sin is not out there, right? Now that passage from first letter of St. Peter, the devil is prowling like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Yes, but then the next line, resist him, solid in your faith. Or St. Teresa of Avila woke up one night, foul smell in her cell, and the devil is a dripping, greasy monster growling at her, and she says, oh, it's just you, and goes back to sleep. (laughs) So to be clear, right? When a strong man, fully armed, guards his house, his house is protected. When one stronger than he overcomes him, that's what's happened. The strong man who was the prince of the world has been overcome. Satan is not to be laughed at because he's an angelic being who's infinitely smarter than you are and infinitely more intelligent than you are and infinitely more clever than you are, right? That's why you resist him solid in your faith because you confess Christ Jesus and game over. That's also why we should not do Jesus the disrespect or the dishonor of saying, devil made me do it. No, he, he's dethroned the devil. So what is Satan's purpose? To tempt, to turn your eye, to play something in front of you. Because the but devil the knows. comes from you then. It's inside you, right? <clears throat> it's inside you. Yep. The devil is just there too. Virtuous. Uh, you know the old <laughs> saying, uh, you can't, uh, what's the, uh, you can't con an honest man, right? You know these theories about con men who try to lie and steal with plenty of those people, all right? They never go after honest people because they know there's nothing to work with here. So it's like that. The more you grow in virtue, the harder it is to tempt you. Now we have to remember, not everything is merely about virtue. Things that were done to us that might have wounded us psychologically, wounded us morally, will make it harder for our virtue to overcome. That's fair. But that's what the, the demons, that's their fundamental goal is to whisper me, right? That's why the serpent doesn't threaten Adam and Eve with anything. Just, what? you can't eat any of these stuff? Oh no, just not in the middle. Oh, the middle, you say. Well, why not? We'll say, well, die. You won't die. That's silly. Not only you not die, you'll be godlike. Look at it. Oh, see, it's good for food. You're hungry. It's pleasant to the eye. Oh. A lot of sins start those two ways. Especially that second one. Pleasant to the eye. Uh Uh-oh. Desirable for gaining knowledge. Think of all the things we do today because we can. We know how. And doesn't it make life easier after all? Those sorts of things. What has stopped with all this take up the cross, honestly? Stop with all this, you know, if someone presses you into service for one mile, go too. Oh, please. We didn't go any miles whatsoever. Forget your neighbor. Who knows about them? Anyways, they can do what they want. Let them do for themselves. They're not like you anyway. You're a good person. You know all these things. You're sophisticated and educated. Not those poor benighted people over there. My gosh. Right? That's the operation of all sin and temptation. 
That's why you can't serve both God and mammon. Yes? Ah, uh, the answer is probably it doesn't really matter how many cookies you steal in that instance. The gravity of your sin would be probably the malice you held in your heart. In that instance, if you took the cookie, the way you know, look, everyone knows what are cookies for? Eating, right? So the only way you know to not eat the cookie is someone says to you, someone who has lawful authority says, don't eat these till after dinner. And that falls into a divine... There's no divine commandment about eating cookies as such. That is their purpose, is to be eaten. And so the morality of it is probably not in the number of cookies you eat, but in the malice in your heart. It went from, right now, I love the taste of the cookie a little bit more than I love my mom. For just this moment. I'll go back to loving my mom more once the cookie's done. But in this exact moment... I love the taste of the cookie a little more versus I don't like my mom. This will tear off. I hate my mom. I don't care what she says. Then that's, so the malice in your heart is what would make it grave, not so much whether you ate one or ten. The one or ten might go, the might start to, that's gonna, it's going to wound your virtue, right? It's going to dispose you to gluttony. Because there's a little bit of naughtiness in it, and I like the naughtiness. So if you eat 10 really fast, it's super good really fast, and that's always, you know, and then I'll want to do that more often. But that's probably... Right, we've all seen little kids shovel cookies into their mouth, and we know that their mom was in the room. We know her to say, you can have three. And then they walk over and say, Mom, can I have another cookie? How many do you have? Two. And you're sitting like, bro, I've seen you eat five or six. I know that I was there. Right, right, right. This happens. This is, and then there's there's something said. You ate five. No, I didn't. Right, on on. Now you can put that in adult situations, and that super same thing happens. Exact same thing happens. Is there a monetary amount on it? I mean, what, how do you divide the line between venial, venial, and mortal when it comes to thou shalt not steal? Yep. So thou shalt not steal is also very very. Difficult. That also lies within the realm of knowledge. So if you have no idea of the other, what this monetary amount is of value to another person, then it is mortal, even if it's a small amount. If for some reason you happen to know that this, that this amount of money is not a serious amount to that person, then it's venial. But that's only because you know it's a small, you squirreled a dollar out of your mom's purse to buy a soda you know that that dollar is not a huge amount to her. That's different from you steal a dollar from someone you, you have no idea how much. Does that make sense? Go back to the cookie example again. What about rulers instead of cookies, people they kill? And they say, got to crack a couple eggs. Well, that's, that's quite different because, of course, a cookie is meant for eating. People are not. So because they are violating directly the greatest dignity of someone made in the image and likeness of God, their soul is in immense peril. Even if they find it expedient. I mean, is it the same path, though, or the same... It just exaggerated. Could be. Knowing People who do great evil as adults, it's probably not the first time they did evil. They probably did a like evil on a smaller level when they were children. Very likely. 
Can you elaborate on how he says not to pray for the mortal sins? Oh, in, in John, the deadly sins one? Yeah, John. Sure, let's go right here. Let's go to first letter of St. John's in the back. Because you have to go to confession. That's the whole point. So when he says, I, I tell you, pray for venial sin, don't write. Do, 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 do. Wait, why don't I have the right passage here? There's one, two, three. Why can't I find it? One John five. Oh, there. I'm sorry. All right, my fun. If anyone sees his brother committing what is not a deadly sin, he will ask, and God will give him life for those whose sin is not deadly. There is a sin which is deadly. I do not say that one is to pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin which is not deadly. This is why you have to go to confession to remove deadly sin, mortal soul-killing sin. Because you didn't create the life of your soul, you nor can anyone else restore the life of your soul. Now take this right to the Mass. Let's acknowledge our sins. Then we, I confess. That's for the right? May Almighty God have, pray for me, brothers and sisters, right? I ask Blessed Mary Virgin, all the angels, saints, and you, my brothers and sisters, to pray for me to the Lord our God, right? If you saw someone whose sin was out, you pray for them. Venial sin goes away. Venial sin. So all venial sin is forgiven with the act of contrition at Mass. Venial sin is your own act of contrition. Okay, but as a mom, kids walk away from the church. They know well they should be with the church. They should be with God. Pulled over by the Well, there you're praying. What are you praying? You're not praying for the forgiveness of sin. You're praying for the conversion of their heart. Because someone who's committed venial sin has not turned away from God. They've hurt their love for God, but they haven't haven't said nuts to God. Right. That's mortal sin. Mortal sin is nuts to God. I do my own thing. Venial sin is, I love you, God, but I kind of do my thing for a minute. So there, you don't pray for the forgiveness of their sin. You pray for the conversion of their heart. especially if it's a mortal sin, you should do that, right? So you don't pray so much that they come back to church. I mean, yes, that, but that they love Jesus. So like, I don't know, the bullshit you says, you know, the apostle asked Jesus, well, who could enter heaven? And God said, well, the man... Not it's impossible. But, so what does, he, what, what does that mean that he said that God enters possible? God-man will die on the cross to open the gates of heaven, so you can go to heaven in the God-man. Well, let's get to it. This is something that's actually a good thing you bring this up because then there is the notion of let's take addiction and habitual sin. All right? Just to... We'll answer your question, but let's answer within context. All right? Addiction and predisposition diminishes the culpability of sin. Right? The drunk, the alcoholic, 
the 567th time that they get drunk is probably not a sin. They have lost control of their ability to freely choose. Right? The freedom of choice is taken away. The first, second, third, fourth time might superpend mortal sins. You know what I mean? Get what I'm trying to say? So habituation and addiction impinges on freedom. They're not freely choosing it. There's an addictive force that compels them. Does that make sense? Are they freed from all wrongdoing? No, certainly not. It's not like, yay, I have an addiction. I can do this bad thing and it doesn't count. That's not the point. Get out of jail, get out of hell, free card. Right, that's not the point because, right, people who have struggled with addiction also know this. They know there was a point that they lost control, but the point is there was a moment when they were in control before they lost it. That's where the healing of the soul comes. Good, good friendships, healing of the mind, positive community life, help them to overcome their addictive impulse. The 10th through 567th time they drank that they don't want to make 568. But the healing of their soul comes in the first, second, third time when they knew they were doing something they shouldn't. And they could have stopped it then, but off it went. That makes sense. So, that, if that was a moral sin then, and you did confess it, but now you have lost all ability to to, to stop from doing that, is would I keep it from getting into heaven? It certainly could. It absolutely certainly could, because now what's happened is this addictive evil has obscured the view of God from your life. You don't have the ability to repent. So, okay, maybe you're not formally sinning in all these times but you have lost the ability to repent. And you're going to need to kick that bad habit. You're going to need somebody to right your ship and help you get over it. And that's going to open, right? We know the addictive, you know, AA and so forth. They have to admit their wrongdoing. They don't ask people to admit their wrongdoing in the midst of their active addiction, which would be incredibly difficult for them to do. So we have to have the healing of their virtue and vice, right? This kind of gets back to the cookie question. Let's not reduce it to eating the cookie. Let's look into what's virtuous here. What helps me grow closer to God and the divine law? So yeah, it is the not drinking for the alcoholic. But an alcoholic just says, I got to white knuckle it and not drink. They need to make amends. Admit higher power. I know I'm not doing it in order, but right? they have to admit higher power. They have to make amends. They have to build strong community life. They have to be right. They have sponsors and a right, an alcoholic, a drug addict, a sex addict is going to need to be around people who will reinforce their values, build that strong community life. That's the gateway to there. Then they go kneel down in the confession and repent before God and have perfect mercy. When they're in the midst of their addiction, that's going to be really hard for them to do. No, all the Orthodox churches also have it. All the varieties of Orthodox and Marianites, and so no, there are other churches that have valid confession. 
Yeah, that is a that is a fact. Again, judge not. We don't judge people's souls, right? So a believing Protestant can certainly have healing from venial sin. Absolutely. What happens when they mortally sin? That's why you want them to become Catholics. No, I mean that. That is why you want them to become Catholic. Because their souls are in real danger. They don't have a way that we know of. We don't judge God. No, God judges. We don't judge. But we don't know of a way for them to repent other than confession. That is why you want to make them Catholics. Well, one of the basics he even said when she was given a vision of hell, that she's non-believers and Protestants. She specifically mentioned Protestants. Okay, that's... Again, that's reasonable to think because they don't have access to... So like for fellow Christians who almost joke about Catholics and going to confession rather than why don't you just take it up with yourself and God and I guess basically talk about your sins with Him. Like how do you direct someone into why... I point them to 1 John chapter 5 and I point them to the Gospel of St. John chapter 21 where it is manifestly clear that Christ places the power to forgive deadly sin outside of the person and into a sacramental order that's outside of yourself. Because if the whole life of sin and grace is utterly within yourself, how do you know you've really done it? What was the other? You said 1 John 5 and... John 21. 21. Uh, The Easter Sunday morning. Breathes on you, whose sins you forgive are forgiven, whose sins you retain are retained. Because, right, you can't redeem yourself. So if you lose the effects of redemption, that's the theology. You cannot merit your own redemption. That comes from Christ. So if you lose the effect of your redemption, the only way you can get it is from Christ. Now, so-called evangelical or Pentecostal Christians solve this problem because they say, well, when I committed my life to Christ, I didn't actually mean it. So they redo the altar call, redo the act of faith. Because they say the first act of faith obviously didn't take because you did this thing. Mainline Protestants are in a real bind. If they do something gravely evil, they know is wrong. They have a, they have a serious problem. So then for Christians who think that since Christ died on the cross, that pretty much opens the gates of heaven, and since they believe he died on the cross, they think that they're just going to heaven. How do you kind of direct, well, you can't just go straight to heaven and let's say you have a mortal sin on your soul that you know was wrong, but since you just believe that Christ died on the cross, you're still going to so when you read the let right, when you read, of course, the Gospels, every measure of judgment that Christ gives is what? Your deeds, what you do. St. Paul talks about that endlessly. Right? Well, does this, because of Christ, does that mean I can sin? By no means. Right, so on and so forth. So you do it through, yes, you, you know the scriptural testimony, all the measurements of, ju- of judgment are your deeds in Christ. The apostles tell you, don't sin. The apostle St. John says, can't even pray for deadly sin. Can't even pray about it. And then you get into the logic of it. Okay, I believe on Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I can do whatever I want. 
No, they don't say that. When you say that to them, like, well, no, obviously not. So I have to obey a moral law? Well, they say yes. They all say yes. So where they fall, so what happens when I break the moral law in a serious way? Pardon? They just go to Jesus. Right, they will, right, so the, but that's when they're stuck in the biblical, then when they say, you just go to Jesus, well, they say, well, then you are clearly contrary to Scripture. You are manifestly against the Word of God that you profess to believe. And, it, you know, I get it. Going to confession requires, right, the Christian church necessitates a psychologically strong people because to go to confession, honestly, requires psychological strength. You have to talk to this person you don't know who may or may not have any particular expertise to overcome the malady with which you are dealing but has been invested with divine power to heal this terrible loss in your soul. You are, in a sense, going to Calvary. Here is this naked man bleeding out on the cross. He said he was going to do all these wonderful things, but here he is gasping of breath and dying. And this is ultimate salvation? Yes. And then when he made it this easy, he just breathed on guys, <sighs> received the Holy Spirit, whose sins you forgive? Yes. It is the act of faith. There is very few. The greatest act of faith is to receive the Eucharist properly. The next greatest act of faith is to go to confession honestly. Because you're saying all the divine promise is here. That deadly sin you can't pray about only comes from, all you can do is beg God's grace. You can see your brother sin bad and don't pray for him to be forgiven. Pray he gets converted. Because that's what healing from mortal sin is conversion. Now, as a sidebar, there are people who go to confession devotionally. They don't mortally sin. They go to confession to get the healing graces of the cross to strengthen their fight against venial sin, right? Do they need to go to confession? Strictly speaking, no. They don't need to. Right? What's the law of the church? You have to go to confession once a year. Right? Just kind of preferably before Christmas or Easter. Nice and clean before you, or whatever. Right? But that's yes. So sin is doing something you know is wrong. But we talked two weeks ago about natural law being embedded into all of us. Mm -hmm. Then there is sin for which we are all held accountable, irrespective of. Our yeah, right. We read that in Romans. The non-believers sin not by God, the law that's stated by God, by the law written on their hearts. Are Christians the only who can sin? No. All kinds of people can do things they know are wrong. Tons and tons. That is the... Right? Because what's the gospel? The gospel is the revelation of God in Jesus Christ of mercy for sinners. That's why we are to be his witnesses beginning in Jerusalem and Judea and unto the ends of the earth. That it is, that's why I say, both, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Why woe? 
because these people's souls will die. Now again, God is God. God does what God wants. But from what I know, what God has told me, has told us, the church, it's zeal for their souls. So then a necessary component for mercy is repentance. Is repentance and conversion, yeah. If you're not sorry for what you do and don't want to do better, you can't possibly have mercy. But you only do that in front of a priest. Can, can you repent and still get mercy if, even if you don't confess it to a priest? If it's mortal, no. Because if you truly, right? Because remember, we're talking inside the Christian revelation, right? If I'm a Muslim and all of a sudden I come to, oh my gosh, I need to repent to Jesus Christ for my sins. That's baptism, right? I should qualify that. Baptism also remits mortal sin. All sin. But you're only baptized once. That's why confession exists. So the baptized believer who sins mortally might be, oh my gosh, this is terrible. I want the life of God back in my soul. How do I do that? The confessional. And then when you commit mortal sin, the Holy Spirit leaves your body, and then when you confess it, he comes back. Again. Yes, that's exactly right. Have you talked to like other pastors about that? Like, what are their responses to you? You had discussions with them? Oh, yes, really many, curious. many, many, many. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Theirs is just, I agree to disagree. Mostly, yes, absolutely. Yes, they absolutely. It either falls, it either falls in the category which uh, I find lacks a rational basis. Well, we just have them recommit the act of faith because their previous act of faith wasn't... That. Well, you only know that post facto. You only know that F, at the moment he made the act of faith, everyone thought it was super. So you just say you can do that endlessly, that's insane. Why not just be Catholics and go to confession? All right. You weren't ever a Christian. We, we all thought you so were. We're going to take care of this now, yeah. and now you are. Mm -hmm. yeah. Which, again, it's... it's, uh, it's you must not have been. If you're trying to stay faithful to the scriptural revelation, but not admit the sacramental reality, then you kind of have to... I'll give, I'll give such people who do that a greater honesty than a lot of mainline Protestants who are just like, well, we just disagree about that. Well, okay. <laughs> So therefore, right, on the level of witness, right, when you come into a situation where your biblical knowledge is sound, your sacramental knowledge is sound, and they're just not having it, well then, you're going to bring them to the gospel probably in a different way. Deeds of charity, holiness of life, win some friendship. You know, I didn't believe this interpretation before, but you've been such a good friend to me, now I do. That super happens. But it has to be grounded in a biblical understanding. Of course, we manifest it in our own lives. We're well past the half hour. Well, only seven minutes. It's not that bad. All right. So say a brief prayer. Anyone who wants to stay and talk, I'll be happy to stay and talk. Otherwise, I want to be respectful of time. In the name of the Father, and Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Hail Mary, full of oh, grace, grace, the Lord, Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen. That is a sidebar. We don't tell people who's going to hell, right? We don't know that. Be mindful of that. There was a great moment. Uh, John Cardinal O'Connor, now deceased Archbishop of New York, uh, Geraldine Ferrari, might have that no name, professed Catholic, openly promoted all kinds of evil things. Cardinal O'Connor, if she keeps doing this, will she go to hell? And he says, well, Jesus be merciful, I hope not, but what I can tell you is her soul is in terrible danger. That's the right answer. That is the exact right answer. Praise Jesus, I hope not. But I tell you right now, her soul's in danger. Right. And they said, well, what are you going to do with that? I'm going to call her on the phone tomorrow. It didn't work, but I mean, right. Oh, my gosh, I see one whose soul's in danger. I'm going to do a pasta with that person because I love them. And I don't want their soul to be in danger. I want their soul to be alive in Jesus. And that's why I do apostolate. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. So especially that good-natured heathen neighbor you have, right? The virtuous who do eat, right? The virtuous who drink too much, the virtuous who cuss, the virtuous who are a little meaner to their families than they should be, but otherwise are vert like, you know what I mean? Those are great people to do a puzzle with because they're close. The other people to go after are like the radical heart. St. Francis of Sales says, Francis says, look, until the whole world is converted, don't even worry about the lukewarm. Forget the mediocre. Just leave them. God will deal with that. It's the virtuous who don't know Jesus and the hard sinners. Let's go after those people because they're actually choosing things. I kind of like that <laughs> idea. That's the St. Francis of Sales. Again, don't, I'm not saying you can't be friends with lukewarm people. Don't, don't misunderstand that. <laughs> If you want to stay and converse and whatnot, I'm happy to otherwise have a beautiful night, everyone.